I was just thinking how we belong to you is such a refreshing word to me, to my, my heart. And, and I've got another good refreshing word for our hearts today. We're going through a series called Written in Red. And uh, we're going to be looking at a passage in Matthew 18. And it's going to be about a topic that I really love. It's about a topic of justice and forgiveness. And uh, so let me pray for us and let's dive into it. Lord, I pray that you would equip your church, God, by your word. God, that we would be doers of your word and not just hearers only. God, that you would work in us, equip in us a forgiving heart where forgiveness is the norm. And God, where you are glorified. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so I was putting this sermon together. I've got the, my name, let me just, you know, if you don't know me, my name is Randy Little. And uh, I was, uh, Luke asked me to preach this morning. And I really love this opportunity. And so I was putting this, this sermon together. And, and it's about forgiveness is what we're going to talk about today. But also kind of justice. And, and I started thinking about it. I was like, you know, I want to, I wanna, what's a story of maybe justice and unforgiveness? And, uh, and I started thinking about it, and all of a sudden, this story came to my mind, and it's the story of the Hatfields and McCoys. And I don't know if you've been to the dinner show in Gatlinburg. I've never been. Um, if I did go, I think I would sit on the Hatfield side if I got the pick, but uh, I don't know, you know, and so. Um, but actually, the more I got to looking into it, the more I was like, you know, it's not really a funny story. You know, we, we've made it a dinner show, but there's really not too many funny things about it. You see, Hatfield-McCoys was a, a feud in West Virginia and Kentucky. And so there was a river, I don't know if, uh, Duck River, there's some river right there that divides the two, and, and these two families were on both sides. So there was a Hatfield, a William Hatfield on this side, and, and he was from West Virginia. They called him Devil Ancy was his nickname. And they called him Devil Ancy because he was mean as the devil from his youth. And, you know, we've all known people that are a little rough around the edges, well, William Hatfield, Devil Lancey, he was probably rough to the core. Okay, mountain man. He's a successful logger in the mountains of West Virginia right at the tail end of the Civil War. That's where this, this happened. And then across the river in Kentucky, you have old Randall McCoy. He's got my name, okay? And uh, old Randall McCoy, he's also a mountain man. You know, just kind of picture um, rough to the core as well. Probably not as mean as Devil Ancy, but probably pretty mean himself. And so this was a family feud, and it really started at the tail end of the Civil War when old Randall McCoy's brother, he decided to fight for the North. And old William um, Hatfield, he didn't like that. And after the Civil War was over, Randall's brother came home, and, and Mr. Hatfield, let's say Devil Ancy, he got together with his gang of rebels, and they went and murdered Randall's brother at the tail end of the Civil War. And then, so they didn't like each other, but they just didn't deal with each other much. And 10 years later, Randall McCoy was at a Hatfield's house, and he saw a pig, and he said, hey, that's my pig. You've stolen my pig. And it became such a big deal that it went to court. But this court was kind of a, you know, it's kind of a family affair. See, the judge was a Hatfield. All right? And the, the jury was made out of, of six Hatfields and six McCoys, all right? It's completely a family affair. But there was a McCoy that he testified in favor of the Hatfields, that it was a Hatfield pig. And, and this McCoy is actually married to a Hatfield, all right? So it's just, it's confusing. It's tough. 
you know, at the end of the day, they said, hey, listen, that's not a McCoy pig, that's a Hatfield pig. And the McCoys got so mad that they stood up and they stormed out of that courtroom and they said, we will find justice. There will be justice over this pig. And then a few days later, that McCoy that testified in, in for the Hatfields, he was murdered by the McCoys. They killed him. And then later on, there was a Hatfield that he impregnated a McCoy daughter. And the McCoys didn't like that at all. And then he left her. And they really hated that. And they began to stew over the, the Hatfields. And they said, you know, we're going to get the Hatfields back. And so they took Devil Auntie's brother. And they... They said, you know, he was a big guy. They said he could hold his own against three men in a fight if they fought fair. Well, these McCoys, they didn't want to fight fair. They stabbed him 26 times and shot him in the back. And so Devil Ancy, he said, you know, I'm going to kill all these McCoys. And so he goes, and he finds them one by one, pulls them out of their house in front of their mom, drags them in the woods, and executes them. And it's an extreme case of bitterness. At the end of the day, there were 13 family members who had died over the search for justice about a hog. And like I said, it gets extreme. And, you know, not all cases of bitterness and unforgiveness get that extreme. But, you know, we've experienced that they do lead to just extreme breaking of relationships, extreme hatred of other people. And it goes right, unforgiveness goes right to our core as human beings. You know, there's just something like, I love the search for justice where I've been wronged. And I don't want to forgive. And it goes right to my heart because I'm a moral accountant, and so are you. And, and from your littlest age, your you know, first days, it's like we have this, we're, we're just moral accountants. We have these ledgers, these internal ledgers on our hearts where we write down, hey, if, if you do me a favor, I'm like, hey, you do me a favor, I owe you. I owe you a favor. And uh, if I do you a favor, I write down your name and I put, you know, you owe me a favor. I kind of write it on my heart. Or if you wrong me, I write it down, hey, I put your name and I say, you wrong me. I'm like, hey, you at least, we use that language all the time, you at least owe me an apology. Because I've got your offense right here and I I want your apology. We also use it and we say, I'm going to hold you accountable. It's like we got our moral ledger right here, and it says, hey, you have, you've said this. Like, I've got your name. You said this. I'm going to hold you to it because I've got on my ledger that you're going to do this. You owe me this. And you know this, this moral accounting? It's actually a biblical idea. It's, it's right. It's not wrong to be a moral accountant. You see, Jesus in this parable today, he's actually going to compare our moral accounting with financial accounting. He's going to make almost a direct comparison. Also in the Old Testament, you've got a lot of language. It's like, hey, you will pay. Justice looks like you will pay life for a life. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. All right? And so there's this sense of moral accounting in the Bible. And that's what justice is about. Justice is about balancing these ledgers that I've got, these wrongs and where I've been wrong, where I've wronged you, that's what justice is about, making it right, paying our debts. And like I said, I long for justice. I do. Like, it's something about my personality. I just, uh, I love right and wrong, and, and there's really no gray. I'm just black and white. You know, it's like, uh, it was wrong or right. And, uh, but also, it's funny how justice gets really complicated. It doesn't seem so black and white. Because I don't always know what justice is. 
You see, I just really have to perceive justice. I just have to perceive that you've wronged me in order for me and my, my ledger, my little internal ledger on my heart to write down your name and your offense. Even if you never did even wrong me, I just have to perceive it. I have to think you wronged me. I have to think you meant ill intent. Ill intent. And so for the Hatfield McCoys, it's like old Randall McCoy, that might not have been his pig. You know what I mean? That might not have, like those, the McCoy that testified in favor of the Hatfields, he might have been right. You know, the, the jury might have been right. Like, it, old Randall McCoy just thought his pig had been stolen. He didn't know. Okay? He thinks he knows, but he, he doesn't know. And we don't always know what really happened, what's really the case. We just think we know. And it gets complicated. And also, if you think about it, wrongs are almost impossible to make right. All right, so we've probably all had a first car, right? And you're, you know, maybe you're 16 years old and you've been working and you purchase your first car and you get it and you're driving it around. And, and uh, you know what? You, you're excited about this thing. Like this thing lets you go A to B by yourself and uh, you love the freedom of it and you, and you get in your car and you, you know everything about your car. You put your own steering wheel cover on it. You know what it smells like and, and what it drives like and uh, all these memories that you put all your friends in there and had a good time. And, but what if somebody comes and wrecks your first car? Okay, and they just say, hey, listen, I'll just replace the car. I'll just get you a car just like it. Well, there's part of you that would say, I mean, yeah, you owe that to me. Thank you. But I bet another part of us would say, well, it's just not my first car. It's not. It's, this is the car after my first car. And you never really can fully make things right when you've been wronged. It's almost impossible. I'm not saying it is impossible, but it is almost impossible, it seems like. You see, in order to bring justice, you really have to be all-knowing. You need to know what happened, what the effects were that came from it. And we just don't know that as human beings. We're just not all-knowing. We're just not in that position. And so if you're like me and you've got an unbalanced moral ledger where you have wronged people, and people have wronged you, and, and maybe there are people in the church. That's where Jesus in this passage is going to meet us today. What do we do with that? How do we handle that? And so this passage, like I said, is Matthew 18, 23 through 25, and I'm going to read it, and let's take a look. Jesus says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle... One was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison till he should pay the debt. When his fellow servant saw what had taken place, sorry, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? 
And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So I want us to look at this passage and uh, in, in the context of where this passage is located, and I want us to see that this is an internal passage. This is a passage geared for the church. It's geared for us. It's not for the world, but it's really we're speaking to a, a family. And you're going to see a family feel. See, Peter asked Jesus how many times, a few lines before, how many times must I forgive my brother? And that's where you have the exchange of seven times, 70 times, where Jesus tells him. So, but he used this word, my brother. He didn't say, how many times must I forgive my neighbor or a stranger? But he uses this word brother. Also, we see in this passage that Jesus is saying that this servant refuses to forgive another fellow servant of the same master, same king. And at the very end, Jesus says, so my heavenly father will do so to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So I want us to see just this is an internal passage. This is a passage for us, the church today. And so there's five main aspects of it. One is the king wanted to settle his account. He decided that. Okay, he made that choice. And one servant owed him 10,000 talents. Now the point, the second point is 10,000 talents is a colossal debt. It's big. And no amount of time will the servant ever be able to repay so if you were there, if you were standing beside Jesus and you heard Jesus tell this parable, and he said that somebody owed him 10,000 talents, I bet you whoever was there would say, whoa, whoa, that's a lot of debt. Because it really amounts to, in today's dollars, it's seven to $10 billion. Seven to $10 billion. Now you might have hopes of being a millionaire, you know, a multimillionaire, but to be a billionaire or a multi-billionaire, I don't think anybody will do it. I hope maybe somebody does in this church, but I just, don't, I just doubt it, you know. That's a colossal amount of debt. And it would take you 200,000 years to pay that debt back. If you were working minimum wage, it would take you 200,000 years. And that's if you paid every penny to your debts and lived on nothing. And so the third main point is that the king had pity. He says, hey, you owed me but I'm going to release you from your debt. You don't owe me anymore. And that's, that's incredible. It's like, what in the world? The fourth main point we need to look at is he came to another servant, a fellow servant of the king, who owed him a significant sum of money too, 100 denarii. Now, this is equal to about 100 days worth of work. So picture about five to $10,000. It's not insignificant, right? If you owe me, if you owe me $20, I would just, you know, I could forget about it. You know, I'm not going to worry about it. But if you owe me $10,000, and I can go buy a little car for $10,000, you know. Um, and so it's a, I'm going to remember, it's, it is significant. But it does pale in, in, it does pale in significance to the uh, $7 to $10 billion. It's, it's a drop in the bucket. And this guy did not forgive his debts. But it's actually an ugly scene. So it says like he grabs him, sees him, and begins to choke him. And the other servants of the master are looking at it and saying, yikes, that is ugly. Like I cannot believe how he treated that person. And they didn't like it and they reported back to the king. And this is the part where, you know, maybe you see the hook. And he says, the king in his anger 
he condemned the unforgiving servant. And he said, lock him up until he could pay. And if you think about it, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus told this parable. And that seems like a really long time to us. But if this were a real story, he's got 198,000 years to go. So the passage is fairly simple for us today. God is the king. And your failings to live up to his image, your sin, that's your moral debt against God and against others. And I think it's important to realize that God has an accurate account of our debt. Like he's got a ledger and he's got, he's got an accurate count of it. And that he also has the power to cancel our debt. And God calls us who have been forgiven to forgive other Christians from their heart. It's what God is, is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. And so forgiveness is a complicated business. It's a, or it's not necessarily complicated, but it's something we don't want to do. And, and it's actually hard to define what forgiveness is if you really think about it. There's a book called Peacemaker by Ken Sandy, and, and I would recommend it to you. I bought it preparing for this sermon, and it was way better than I even thought. And uh, it's all about making peace and forgiveness. And essentially what forgiveness is is that you don't owe me anymore. Okay? Remember how you wronged me, how you did wrong to me? Okay, I'm not going to make you repay. I'm going to erase that offense, your offense from my heart. I'm not going to dwell on it. I'm not going to use it against you. I'm not going to bring it back up. I'm not going to talk about your wrong to other people and slander you and gossip about you. And it's a conscious inclining your heart toward the good of the person who's offended you in the church. And that's very, very difficult if you think about it. Wow. Inclining your heart toward your offender. And another implication is that if you're not willing to forgive your brother, your brothers and sisters in the church from your heart, Jesus is saying that you're going to hell. It's that serious. And that's the weight that Jesus is putting on this, on forgiveness and unforgiveness. He's putting that kind of of, yeah, like I said, weight onto it. And it's also very serious because in a fallen world, we've got a ton of opportunities to not forgive one another, right? We've got a ton of opportunities to wrong each other, be wronged by one another. And in a fallen world, moral accounting gets really ugly, doesn't it? See, we have divorce where it says, hey, I've got your name and you promised that you would be here. You promised that you would not leave me, but you've left me and now there needs to be justice, we have affairs. You promised to be faithful to me, but you weren't. And there needs to be justice. This needs to be made right. I've been wronged. Maybe you lied to me. You're supposed to tell the truth. There needs to be justice. Maybe you've stolen something from me. I write down, there needs to be justice. This needs to be made right. This isn't supposed to be this way. See, there's a lot of wrongs that need justice in our church, just in our church, not in this outside world, but just in our church. A lot of wrongs need justice. In a world where we're not going to forgive one another, if we're going to withhold forgiveness, if we're going to endlessly just seek justice, and justice that's not at all really maybe all clear, then we're going to end up bitter in our soul, bitter in our soul, Destroying our community. See, unforgiveness, it's, it's like a poison. 
And it seems there's no answer but to stew and drink this poison. And this, here's what it looks like is that we, we meditate on the person that wronged us. Right? We put them in a negative light every time we think about them. We slander them. You know, we destroy our relationship with them. We allow this incident to just destroy our relationship. And depending on the, 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 depending on the offense, we want them dead. Like we hate people. If they, if they cut us deep enough, wrong us deep enough, hurt us deep enough, then we hate them. And unforgiveness is, Ken Sandy in his book, he says that unforgiveness is the poison you drink hoping that somebody else is going to die. And we're not immune from it. I'm not immune from it. You're not immune from it. But we know somewhere forgiveness has to happen. But you know what? I, I don't want it to fall at my feet. I really want justice to fall at my feet. But if I wrong you, boy, I want you to forgive me. You know, I, that's when I want forgiveness. It's kind of a double standard. But, but we also know that somewhere forgiveness is going to have to fall at our feet. And so we ask kind of how do we do it? How do we forgive? And, and we often in the church, we often look to the world on how to forgive. And so I want to ask a question. Is this world that we live in, is it marked with forgiveness? Is it a very forgiving world? I would say no. No, it's not. You know, I think this world holds on to everything almost. But they do say, hey, I, I, I'll think about forgiving you, you know, but you'd better be asking for forgiveness first. Or after you've paid back what you owe, then I'll think about inclining my heart towards you and forgiving you. Or, yeah, after you've had some kind of retribution. Or maybe I'll give you forgiveness after you just really repented and, and got down on your knees and begged for forgiveness and begged and begged. And then I'll think about inclining my heart towards you. But, but we better start there first. It's no forgiveness at all. The world also forgives passively. We just say, I'm just going to let time go by and I'll forget it. Yeah, I'm just going to let time go by. I can't, I can't think about it, but just I'm going to let time go by and to the point where I just can't even remember what the offense was, what happened. Um, give it time. This world also has a sense of superficial forgiveness. So small things, you know, you, um, you know, probably bigger than you bumped into me in the hallway. Hey, no problem. Don't worry about it. You know, you're, you knocked me, you knocked, you know, ran into me. I'm carrying my groceries. I drop them on the ground, you know, pick them back up. Don't worry about it. No problem. But sometimes, you know, things that are a little bit more valuable, you know, uh, we just have competing values. And we, we're willing to offer forgiveness because, you know, we value something more. And so I was just thinking of an example was the other day I was driving home from work and I was on this, this exit coming on to 40 and we're doing about three miles an hour. And, and this guy pulls out from behind me and he just, you know, it's one lane. We're all just going, like I said, three miles an hour. He, he pulls out and he just wants to jump around and cut in front of me. Okay. He just wants to skip like three cars in this whole process. And, and on the way in, he, he started to nudge his way in. And, and uh, I was like, no, I'm, I'm not letting you in, you know, like you, you don't know who you, you know, you're trying to cut in front of. And so, uh, and so it's funny, he pulled forward and, and, you know, he's not looking, right? He's kind of got this pillar where he can't see me, right? And he's keeping, keeping it there. So he kind of nudges and I just kind of nudge around. 
he nudges and nudges around. And finally, he starts getting mad, and he, he slows down. He looks at me, and I'm just like, get in the back. You know, you ain't getting in. And he's cussing. He's mad. And, and, uh, and he's, I mean, look, there was a big gap in front of us, and he just floors it. I floor it too. Didn't let him in, you know. And uh, at the end of the day, he got back behind me. And I thought, you know what? Justice was served, right? <laughs> and, uh, but the reality is that if my wife was in the car with me, I would just let him in, you know. I wouldn't want to ruffle our feathers. I would forgive that guy for cutting in front of me because I know that my wife would, you know, it would just, our relationship would be strained from it. And so our competing values, sometimes I'm just willing to let things go because I value something more. But also, there's sometimes when, uh, when you strike a nerve, right, when you, when you wrong me or or you're wronged, we need some sort of payments. This world would say, hey, you got to get some kind of payment, some kind of installments until the debt's paid. And, and the Sandy book, I, I kind of get this from him, and he says, you know, uh, making payments on moral debts, it often looks like this. It says, you know, it's like I'm going to dwell on the wrong. I'm going to dwell on it. I'm going to count that as kind of a payment toward it. Or I'm going to act cold toward you. I'm going to give you the cold shoulder. You know what? I'm not going to talk to you anymore until you make this right. I'm going to break our relationship. Maybe I'm going to inflict emotional pain. I know the buttons. I know, I know how to hurt you, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to push those buttons. I'm going to inflict emotional pain on you until I feel like I've exacted enough payment. I'm going to gossip about you. Maybe you show up in the room and you say something, and I'm going to be the first one to lash back at everything you say because I'm trying to, I'm trying to get payments on this debt that you owe. And we seek revenge until that debt is paid fully. And it's ugly. And we do this often at the loss of relationships in our church. We are destroying our family by doing this. But you know what a lot of us are doing? it. How many people do you know who are just banking on time going by, who haven't spoken to people in years because of what somebody else said or did? It's either you know that person, you've been that person, you are that person. They happen all the time. And isn't it ugly, just like those other servants, isn't it ugly when we're unforgiving and we're trying to exact payments from other people? You know, you might not see it. I don't always see it when I'm in the middle of choking somebody trying to get debts paid. But other people do, and they, they say, ooh, Randy, that's ugly, ugly. And it's ugly when we see you do it too. It's ugly. See, when we try to forgive like this world forgives, we're going to just struggle to cope with all the injustice that we face day to day. And we need something more if we're going to truly forgive from the heart. If we're going to truly incline our hearts to one another, we need something more than how this world teaches us to forgive. And that's the good news. The good news is that the Lord, he's building a church where forgiveness is going to be the norm. And not, there's going to be no unforgiveness in this church. He, he, God doesn't allow for it. He doesn't tolerate it. And he provides both a way to have justice and to have forgiveness. And, and here's God's fix for us. Is that it starts with our busted moral ledgers. That we are busted and more flawed than we'd ever dare believe. Now, that's a Tim Keller quote, but it's a good one. It's a, uh, 
we've wronged others and we've been by wronged by others and we know um, that's the case. And God also finds us slandering himself. You know, every offense that we commit against each other is at the same time an offense against God. See, God has a ledger and he's got your name on it, right? And God has given you commandments. And let's just say the Ten Commandments. And he's got your name. And every time you didn't keep a Ten Commandment, one of, one of his commands, he, he puts your offense on there. He says, you've lied, write it down. You've stolen something, he writes it down. Right? You hate somebody from your heart, he writes it down. Every time that you try to find life outside of him, and you ignore God, and you, you stiff-arm him, and you, re, you refuse to submit to him, his rule, he writes it down. Every time you worship the idols of your hearts, he remembers and he writes it down. Every time you don't love him with all your heart, and your soul, and your might, he writes it down. Every time you don't love your neighbor or yourself, he writes it down. Every time you fail to re- represent God as, as his image bearer, he writes it down. See, he has a ledger and your record of your faults, and it is a colossal debt. And God is a God of justice. He always does justice. He never just passes over justice. He might forbear for a time, but eventually there will be justice. And we see, though, how God brings justice. We have 1 John 1.9 as a verse. It says this, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, God gives justice through Christ. That's his plan. That's what he's done. See, Jesus lives a perfect life. In regards to wronging somebody, he he wrongs nobody. In regards to God's laws and keeping God's statutes and rules, he does it perfectly. He's got a perfect record of law keeping. And because he wants to, because his heart is gentle and lowly, which is a good book. If you didn't get one, you should get it in the uh, foyer on the way out. But because his heart is gentle and lowly, he's merciful and forgiving. And that's what he wants to do. That's what Jesus wants to do. He wants to cancel debts. And so he sees us. He sees us with our debt that we could never pay. No amount of time could we ever pay back our debt, make our debts right. And he decides to come in our place for us. And he is a substitute for his church. And he justifies us. Jesus makes us just as if we had never sinned and just as if we'd always obeyed God. And he does it by his perfect record that he gives to us. See, he takes, our perf- he takes his perfect record. He doesn't simply pass over our sins, but he accomplishes justice for our sins against him. And he does it on the cross. Colossians 2.14 says that God has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with his re- legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so what God does, he takes your ledger. It's got your name and all your offenses that you've ever done. And he sh- rips it out and he nails it to the cross. And then he takes... Jesus' ledger, his righteousness, his perfect record, and he puts it in there under your name. And justice in Christ means that Christ paid the penalty, and he paid it in full. 
And not only does he cancel our debt at the cross, but he, continued to intercede, he continues to intercede on our behalf. See, we continually sin against God. And we would think that, hey, we, our, our, our debt is starting to stack up again. But Jesus doesn't allow that to happen. He, to, he continually applies his work on the cross, his righteousness. And he continues to intercede with his with father, say, no, father, I died for that one. It's covered. No, no, this one's covered too. This wrong, this offense is covered. Continually, again and again and again, every day of our lives until we die and stand before God and are clothed in his righteousness. That's what God does for us. That's what Jesus does for us. And he does it because he loves us and he loves to lavish grace upon us and to forgive us again and again and again. It doesn't matter the offense. Forgiven. Forgiven. If you know the Lord, forgiven. And so on one hand, Jesus said he acquires righteousness for us. And on another hand, um, you know, he stands in our place and he gives us his perfect record, but also he grants us the Holy Spirit. And this Holy Spirit, his Holy Spirit, he opens our eyes to see Christ, to see that we have this colossal debt. And yet Jesus has stood in our place and paid this debt. Now, we don't see it fully. We don't understand every wrong. I don't understand every wrong that I've ever done, but I do have a sense of it. I have a sense that, yeah, I'm a miserable sinner. Guilty before God if I was going to stand on my own. But also a sense of grace and forgiveness that the Lord has stood in my place. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what God does through his Holy Spirit. So if you're going to sit there and hold another Christian accountable, if you're going to try to bring in somebody else's debt, another Christian's debt, and you're going to be mad about it and stupid about it and say, God, I want justice over this person. This person has wronged me, and I want this to be made right. I'm not going to incline my heart to them. I want justice. God, I want you to do something about it. God is saying, no, no. Well, I mean, I did something about it. But, but if you want to bring that person before me in a court of law, I'm going to say that person is forgiven. I'm not, he's not going to receive condemnation for what he's done. He is forgiven. Just as I've forgiven you, I've forgiven him. And God has forgiven us. And so that's what God is working, on us, working in us who believe the gospel. He's working in us these hearts that realize that I've been forgiven, you've been forgiven, we've been forgiven by God. And if you're, and, and the truth is that forgiven sinners forgive Christian sinners. That's what God has created in this church. And so if you choose to withhold forgiveness, what you are saying is that, you know, I really don't believe that I have been forgiven. God, I don't believe that you have forgiven me. I might not believe that I have this colossal debt. And what you're saying is that, or what's reality, is that you don't really have the Holy Spirit that's ever really shown you and convicted you of your sin. And you're not actually in the family. See, how we treat one another matters. When we withhold forgiveness, we're just exposing and showing our cards, not in the family. Not a Christian. Don't know God. Don't know his forgiveness. And justice apart from Christ means you're going to have to pay your colossal debt, whether you see it or not. And in Jesus' words, he's going to say, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you believe with me. 
And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. As I would say, don't neglect this great salvation in Christ. If you have an unforgiving heart, I would encourage you to look at the law of God. Look how holy God is. And look at the cross where God would wipe away all of your transgressions and receive Christ and receive his forgiveness because that's the only way anybody will ever have life. And for us in the church, we need to allow the gospel to empower us to forgive one another, our brothers and sisters. You know, we, we can't do this on our own. It's really interesting. Like, in order to incline our hearts toward one another, we need God to help us do it. And so the first thing we got to do is we got to pray and we got to ask God to help us see him, help us see the cross and see our debt and help us to incline our hearts toward one another. And then two, we have to make a decision to actively forgive other people who have offended us. We got to actively decide that, hey, we want God to be glorified. That's our highest aim. And we're willing to cancel the debts that other people where they have offended us because we want God to be glorified. And we have to actively choose that. It's where I say, yes, I've been wronged and I've been hurt, but I'm going to actively incline my heart towards you. Like I said, praying, asking God to help me. And it's not going to be a one time and done, right? It's going to be a continual effort, continually actively turning our hearts toward one another. And we're going to need to replace our negative thoughts with Christ-honoring thoughts. And so passages maybe like Luke 6, 27, 28, Jesus says, I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. So we need to hear Jesus encouraging us to forgive and do good, incline our hearts to one another. Also Philippians 4, 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And so and the person who has offended you, think about what they have done right. right? Think about what's admirable about them. There's something about them that is good, that is like Christ. Think about those things. Put your mind there and forgive. Incline your heart toward that person. You know, and fourth is it, it just doesn't get rid of consequences either. So inclining my heart towards somebody doesn't necessarily mean that they don't repay or there's not consequences. See, consequences are also a good thing. They can be a character-building thing, okay? They can help us conform one another to the image of Christ. So let's just say that we, we, we have a great church treasurer, but let's just say a church treasurer stole money from the church, and God is calling us to forgive this treasurer, incline our hearts toward this treasurer. But also at the same time, they might be expected to repay for their own character building, right? For their own sanctification to pay back on that. And we might say, listen, you're not going to be treasurer anymore because we're going to remove you from the temptation. But it's going to be all because we're going to treat you with our hearts inclined toward you. And toward building you up and making you more Christ-like. And so it doesn't always get rid of consequences, but it does cause us to incline our hearts toward one another. There's room for disagreements, but not for bitterness. 
And so I want to just ask us, where do we need repentance? As I wrap this up, where do we need repentance? Who do we need to forgive? I want you to think about it. Who do you need to forgive? Who are you holding on to bitterness and not inclining your heart toward? Maybe it's other believers in other churches. Maybe it's fellow partners here at Legacy. Calm leaders. The elders. Maybe it's something we've said or done or, or uh, just who do you need to forgive? And I'll just encourage you, don't withhold forgiveness. Incline your heart toward one another. That in the church, there's no room for it. Forgive. So we're going to transfer now to a time of communion. And, and communion is just a time where we're going to remember that Christ came and he paid our debt. He forgave us all of our offenses.